Two Moms Media and Your Daily Local in Warren, PA. This is Smoke, the disappearance of Damien Sharp. Chief Rick Poorman of the Warren City Police Department contacted me. He wanted to know if uh, I'd be willing to help the department and assist them in their investigation. He advised that he would contact Dana Kibbe and he'd tell her I'd, I'd be doing this if she'd be willing to pay for my time. Dana called and advised that she did not think this was right for the police to be asking this. I advised Dana to think about this and get back to me so I'd be able to tell the chief whether or not I was going to assist. You guys, we have Herzog's notes. They're mostly complete. I'll get to all that, but that one you just heard, that's from Tuesday, March 11th, 2003. John Herzog, the private investigator Janine Shanahan and her family, including her sister, Dana Kibbe, hired to investigate her son's disappearance, wrote that note five days before sitting Damien's stepmom, Stacy, down in an interview room with patrolman Anthony Comenti to ask her about her drug use history, her history with Damien, what she thought might have happened to him when he went missing on May 25th, almost a year earlier at that point. John was a retired police detective. He spent 26 years with the Pennsylvania State Police before becoming a private investigator, and he investigated Damien's case like I'd expect a cop to investigate it, but it's too bad, because I think what this case needed was a smoother touch than John or Tony or any of these guys ever had. A softer touch. And I'm going to tell you every single thing I think about this investigation based on the mostly complete document the City of Warren Police Department released to Damien's family last Friday. But before I even start this episode, which is going to focus on the culture of law enforcement then, in 2002, and now, I want to say thank you. Thank you to the department for releasing John's notes to Damien's family. This has been a stuck point for a lot of years, for most of that family. This is a gift long overdue for them. To Damien's family, I want to say thank you more. Thank you for handing them over to me and trusting me with them. I could not be happier to be working with them to tell the deepest, truest version of your experience that I can. This is a step in the right direction, off a path I feel strongly that John stepped down on March 11, 2003, alongside the department when they called Dana and asked her to pay John's fee to investigate the case for them instead. That is so unacceptable to me, I can't even really find a word for it. I don't know that it's technically unacceptable, maybe it's totally, totally allowed. We'll get to that later when we look at the rules and expectations for private investigators in the state of Pennsylvania. But for now, I want to say that to me, as an investigative journalist, having investigated this case for the past two years, the thought of asking Damien's family to pay my wage to share what I've learned throughout that process with police in the hopes that it might help solve the case, unconscionable does not even begin to cover. That's, I have nothing. For now, I want to say that I slept really, really well knowing the family had that document in their hands last night, Saturday night, as I started writing this episode. But because we now have as complete a document as I think we're going to get, I need to do some quick housekeeping. In the last two episodes, I made it very clear that I had an incomplete subsection of this document and that I was telling you what I knew based on those, that we didn't know what happened in between the notes that I had. Well, now we do. So two quick things. First, at around the seven or eight minute mark of episode three, I said that Jim Blackman was the county's former district attorney. My script said assistant district attorney because that's what Jim had been, but my mouth didn't. It's a minor factual inaccuracy within the context and scope of that episode, but it's there, so let's set it straight. Assistant district attorney. There we go. Now, also in the last episode, I said that Henry Borger was the attorney that Pat's parents hired after Damien went missing. That was inaccurate. Clearly, once the entire document became available, so I want to make that clear to you as well. Pat's parents did not hire attorney Henry Borger after Damien went missing. Okie doke. Now, kids, I gotta tell you that holy crap, I felt more energy zap me in the fingers when I took physical possession of this document than I did when I received my pre-ordered and much-anticipated copy of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. At Barnes & Noble on Upper Peach Street in Erie. At midnight. As a 25-year-old grown-ass adult. 
I'm not ashamed, so don't even try. The entire document is 100 pages long, comprised of 88 pages of personal notes punctuated by the following supplements. A one-page title sheet, a five-page background check for which Herzog billed an additional expense of $50, a one-page email sent to the family's Find Damien email address, a two-page list of questions and action items, and a three-page set of diagrams mapping out Damien's known identifying marks. There's a two-page summary of the genesis of his involvement with the case, along with a summary of everyone's contact information and a description of Damien. It reads, Damien Mark Sharp, date of birth, 8-6-1979, male, 5 feet, 7 inches tall, 170 pounds, hazel eyes, blonde hair, dyed black, was on crutches, scar on upper lip, right side, slight scar under right eye, scar on left foot, outside of foot, near heel, Large tattoo on chest of an onk, symbol of life, usually dresses in all black. Herzog notes that Dana was his first contact in regards to Damien's case when she called him on September 24th, 2002. She requested that he come talk to her about Damien and his case. On Wednesday, Herzog writes that he did just that, driving to her home at 203 Pleasant Street in Sugar Grove. Herzog spent two hours at Dana's that day, he wrote, and told her that he'd take the investigation but would need Janine to sign a release, stating that she wanted that to happen. Shirley Allred called Herzog twice two days later on September 26th to make the same request as Dana. On September 27th, Herzog returned them at 9 a.m., writing that he told Shirley, too, that he'd need Janine on board and on paper, saying so. At 1 p.m. that same day, Herzog called Janine, and the two of them agreed to meet with Shirley and Dana at Shirley's home in Cherry Grove. We covered that meeting, which happened the next day, Saturday, September 28th, in episode two of this season. Go back and re-listen to catch that whole story. The next page is Janine's signed release, witnessed, as Herzog said, by Shirley and Dana, and dated September 28th, 2002. In the last episode, I said I didn't know what might have happened between when Janine hired Herzog and October 1st when he first met with Damien's brother, Stephen. Now I do. On Monday, September 30th, Herzog made his first stop for this case after being hired at District Attorney Rick Hernan in Warren. I asked Mr. Hernan if the case was still listed as a missing person, and he advised me that it was. Hernan told me that he would assist my investigation in any way that he could, and uh, I told him I was going to contact the city police and talk to them about the case, and then he advised me that Patrolman Scott Taylor and Chief Deputy Ken Claycamp had been keeping files on what the task force had done. I'm unclear on who precisely served on that task force and how it was generated, how, when, and why it disbanded, and what its specific investigative goals were, who or where they were focused on. But I've heard lots of people tell me about it over the last couple of years. I'll dig a little deeper into that as I'm able. But as always, if you remember it or know something about it, reach out and let me know that. After meeting with Hernan that Monday, Herzog, quote, then went to the city police station and met with Lieutenant Michael Wachter. Wachter's name will come up regularly throughout these notes, but it may be a new one to you. This was just one of Herzog's main contacts at the city of Warren PD in the fall and spring of 2002. Herzog told Wachter that he'd been hired as a private investigator by Damien's family and gave him a copy of the release Janine signed, which read that, quote, This letter is to advise you that I have hired John Herzog III, licensed private detective, to investigate my son, Damien Mark Sharp, being a missing person. Mr. Herzog will act as my agent when dealing with matters concerning my son, end quote. Walker told me that uh, at this time Damien Sharp had been listed as a missing person only, and the Warren City Police Department uh, had no evidence this time that there had been any crime committed. Okay, hold up. Let's define a crime and let's investigate that statement just a little more deeply. According to the Cornell Law School Legal Encyclopedia, which doesn't sound like a legit source but actually really is because you can visit it at the link in the show notes, a crime is defined as behavior, either by act or omission, defined by statutory or common law, as deserving of punishment or penalty. What Wachter's telling Herzog here is that Damien's case is considered a missing person case, not a missing person slash homicide case, because at this point in time, there's no evidence that rises to the level that would convince anyone in the department that Damien had been murdered, which would be necessary for them to add slash homicide to the tab at the top of his file folder after missing person. See? 
Herzog asks Wachter this question on September 30th, 2002. That's just over four months after Damien went missing, kids. No one has seen or heard from Damien in a long, long time. And you don't know this if you didn't listen to last season, but Damien called his mother, like, a lot. He checked in with her constantly. Janine, Dana, Shirley, and even Stephen have all said many times. Janine stopped hearing much from Damien around a week before he went missing on May 18th, about a week after Mother's Day. I'm back to Damien's predictability with certain things when I think about this, and I can't help but wonder if it's significant. Did Janine start hearing less from Damien because trouble was brewing in his social circles outside of their relationship? Damien was known to be able to walk away with drugs from numerous people in town, and he was trusted to return with the money he owed for them. Had something maybe happened on one of those deals the week or two before Damien went missing that was keeping him quieter than usual with Janine? Not answering her calls or calling her himself like he usually did? It's worth considering that May 25th may not represent the day some crazy shit happened in Damien's life that sent him into a disappearance. It could have been the boiling point for a situation that had been simmering over the past week or two or more. Just thoughts. Anyhow. After trying to get an answer why... Homicide wasn't on the table with the police department yet. I, uh, I told Walker that um, any information that the police needed uh, would be passed through me from the family. And uh, I asked him that uh, anything they needed would uh, come through me also. I once lived in a house that had only one door. Literally, there was one way into this house and one way out. Sometimes that made me feel safe. Most of the time, though, it made me feel just a little bit trapped. What would I do, I'd wonder, if I were trapped inside and the only means of ingress for rescue personnel or egress for me were off the table? I personally would not like this setup if I were in the family's position and hiring myself a private investigator. For my money, and this may be tainted by what I've spent the past two years doing, interacting with the police myself, but putting myself in the family's shoes if I were them Finding the police department working on my kid's case difficult to work with, I'd be spending money on someone who could smooth those interactions, not have them for me. I'm a little bit of a control freak, but no. I'm not paying someone to take over my ability to interact with my kid's case and the people in charge of it. I'm not paying someone to speak to the cops for me. I'm hiring someone to make the cops listen to what I have to contribute, if that's not already happening. I'm sure that wasn't an approach that Herzog would have even considered for a variety of reasons, and I'm sure it's not one that many private investigators would be too keen on today either, because since 1953, when the legislation laying out the rules and expectations for being a PI in the state of Pennsylvania was enacted, you have to be a cop of some kind to even be a private investigator in this commonwealth. Which personally bums me out because I had some hopes and dreams when this podcast ended, to be honest. But it's fine because maybe I'll get bored and mess around and get the legislation changed for my next trick. Who the hell knows? Either way, Herzog sets himself up in this case immediately as the single door to my extremely fire-unsafe old house. One way in, one way out for information in any direction. And that's Herzog. And that's dangerous, I feel. Because what if Herzog gets jammed up? But okay, we've covered that. At this point, Herzog asks Wachter about the details he's gotten so far. Remember, he's only had that first meeting with Janine, Dana, and Shirley. This is his groundwork, you guys. He asks Wachter about Pat's money and what they know about it. They told me that they verified that Pat had stolen a couple thousand dollars from his aunt. And uh, he'd given $700 to $1,000 to Damien to uh, buy him a pound of marijuana. And they also uh, advised me that James Sarver admitted that Damien was uh, at his residence on Saturday night. And uh, Sarver did not say that he, he did not say that he sold any drugs to Damien, but uh, he admitted that Damien made a phone call from his apartment and then uh, then he left. Yep, Sarver told me the same thing when I spoke to him over the course of several weeks last year following his release from state prison. Sarver told me that not only did he not sell Damien drugs that Saturday, as had originally been planned, but that he didn't do it because he had concerns when Damien got there that Damien might have been a confidential informant. He was otherwise acting shady, and it freaked Jim out. I'll go over all that with you in the next few episodes, but basically what I'm telling you right now, nothing that Herzog is finding out differs that wildly from what I've found out in my own investigation, but I'm retrieving details from people now that Herzog either did not retrieve or did not document in his notes. 
Either of those two things is possible, but I'm curious which it is. Just because I'm curious. Relentlessly, it's a serious problem. For someone. Herzog ended that inaugural encounter with the department over Damien's case by verifying the demographics for Dave, Albert, and a kid who used to date Jessica. That source from the last episode who told Stephen that Damien was after coke the night he went missing, not weed. These were all people Herzog intended to and did speak with over the ensuing month. And that catches us up to Tuesday, October 1st, when Herzog had his first interview with Damien's brother, Steve, which was the intricate and borderline obsessively detailed last episode of the show. Right hand to God, I will not be rehashing any of that today, kids, so go back and listen if you need to catch up on that thread of this story. Okay, so now that we're caught up, now that we have a full document to look at, Let's take a quick break. When we get back, we'll peek in on who Herzog talked with immediately after Stephen, like the next day. No one's ever heard any of what's coming next except the cops, you guys. So hang tight, and we'll catch you on the other side. Yeah? think of the answer Herzog got from Lieutenant Wachter in that last segment about why Damien's case was listed as a missing person and not as a missing person homicide. That was said to Herzog at the beginning of October 2002, just over four months since Damien disappeared. We're on page 13 of 100, you guys. Already, Herzog has asked every single person he's come across since the day he was hired about drugs. Every person he talked to, law enforcement or not, with the exception of District Attorney Hernan, Herzog asked about drugs. Behavior, either by act or omission, defined by statutory or common law as deserving of punishment or penalty. Four months. What behavior on the part of anyone by this point do you think may have pointed to a crime having been committed here that involved more than drugs? Not a crime Damien might have been committing, but one of which Damien was the potential victim. Leave me a message at anchor.fm slash let's find Damien and tell me whether you think there was evidence at this point for the police to have listed Damien's case as a potential homicide in addition to a missing person. Numerous times throughout these notes, we see interview subjects being asked, told, or otherwise sent out among Damien's people to see what they can find out for themselves. It feels kind of like the same way police make use of confidential informants. Trojan horses who have access to the people around Damien that would spook were a cop to approach them. Many of the people around Damien when he went missing wound up in jail, with some facing their first charges for escalated or violent offenses in the fall of 2002. Two of those incarcerated were the next people Herzog went to see, both at the Warren County Jail on Wednesday, October 2nd, when Herzog met with them in tandem, starting at 12.30 p.m. The first of those two guys was Albert. Recall that Albert, Albie as friends sometimes called him, was the one who called the apartment while Dana and Stacy were there, checking things out to follow up on Dave's phone call. He told them they might want to check the jails, that he'd loaned Damien $45, and that whatever Damien was up to, the amount of money involved, it, quote, wouldn't be worth it. Albert had just turned 22 years old on August 7th that fall. He lived on Beach Street on Warren's West End, not far from Damien's dad's house on Taft Place and Stephen and Dave's workplace, Worley Industries. I started by telling Albert that uh, I only wanted to locate Damien, and uh, if he was dead, I, uh, I, just, I wanted to bring him home so he could be, uh, so he could be buried. Albert told me that uh, Damien was a friend of his and they'd uh, done drugs together, that they'd smoked weed. And uh, he said if uh, Damien had some and, and if he didn't, he would uh, share it with me and I would do the same. And, uh, he said Damien did a little coke, but uh, he didn't really get into coke. Albert told me he'd been uh, screwed over by the police. He said that uh, they were going to let him out and he was going to check around and find out what happened to Damien. And, he said that uh, someone had screwed him over because uh, they went in front of the judge and told the judge he wasn't a good risk. He said, uh, and now I'm not, I'm not going to get out now until December. 
when I started asking him questions about drugs, uh, Albert asked what that had to do with Damien. Uh, he said he didn't want to really say anything until he got out of jail. And uh, I also said to him that I thought, I thought he was a friend of Damien's. Why wouldn't he want to tell me what I wanted to know? At this point, in my opinion, having been in awkward positions where I'm expected to explain shit I don't want to explain honestly, I see Albert dip out here, you guys. Right here. And in my strong opinion, we are witnessing in his next words to Herzog the birth of a rumor whose purpose was to remove Herzog immediately from Albert's back. The note goes on. Albert said he felt that uh, Damien went to Pittsburgh to buy drugs. And uh, he probably flashed that money, and, and someone probably whacked him for that money. I've never felt anything for this theory, even though it comes to me often. As you heard Anziette say in the last episode, Damien, Steve, and Dave, all these cats talked about moving to Pittsburgh and going to school down there. Damien specifically had interest in audio and video production. I wonder often if he had done that, what he would have done with that education. If he'd have sold out to MTV, had he lived, I'd be really disappointed because then this whole podcast would immediately become some weird version of Reality Bites. Anyhow, I just wanted to catch your attention here and make sure that we make note of these little moments when the guts and mechanisms of folklore get laid bare. They're really interesting moments, and for me, they've informed how I've heard every story after them since I was a kid. Once you know how stories work and how we tell them, you'll hear every other story with more awareness of that forever. You're welcome. And also, I'm sorry. It's exhausting sometimes, but you're still mostly just welcome. Albert went on. Damien came to my house on uh, Thursday and showed me the money. He said he got it from someone who was uh, stealing it from their aunt. And he said he was going to go to Pittsburgh. And uh, I asked him about Sarver and he said he didn't really know where Damien got his drugs. And uh, I asked how much money Damien had on him, had on him on Thursday, and uh, Albert said it was probably around fourteen hundred dollars. And uh, he advised me to tell the family of Damien that when he gets out of jail, he'll he'll keep his eyes open and uh, maybe he can uh, come up with something. So, just because you guys know I'm all about that completion rate, I've been trying to get at Albert for almost a year now. I first wrote to him on February 19th of last year telling him I heard his name around the campfire and would like him to come sit around it too and tell me some stories. No answer. October 19th, same deal, same answer. Crickets. Finally, once again this past Friday, January 13th, appropriately, I guess, I reached out to Albert once again to let him know that I had these notes and if he'd like to talk to me about what's in them or anything else related to the case... I'm ready to go on that with him. I also told Albert in that message that I know he told Dana the night he called that apartment, apparently pretty concerned for Damien that he would see what he could find out and get back in touch with her. And he did that, Dana told me in her interview last year. He didn't find anything out, but he did reach back out to her. He followed up. Here, he tells Herzog that when he gets out of jail, he's going to see what he can find out. He's going to try and help. Albert volunteers his tribute, y'all. I really would love it, Albert, if you'd reach out to me, if you're listening now, and if any of you listening out there know Albie, send him my way, because we could really use that help now, my man. Immediately after that meeting, Herzog asked to interview a guy named Mike Baxter. Just 18 years old on the day Herzog interviewed him, Mike was one of the younger people hanging around Damien, as was Pat, who gave Damien that weed money, Bryce, and numerous people said to have been at that Friday, May 24th party at the Cedar Street apartment. Michael told me that uh, he and Damien really weren't friends. He said that uh, he went to parties that Damien was at, but they really weren't buddies. Uh, he told me that he sold Damien drugs before. And he said uh, the cocaine on the streets of Warren was really poor quality. So uh, he'd buy coke and buffalo, and if they had any left, they would go to Warren and, and cut it so it was really, really weak. And he, he said they had to cut it to, uh, so they could get their money back. He said he gave uh, Damien Coke one time that had been, had been really cut bad. It was, he said it was just junk. And uh, a couple days later, Damien told him how, uh, how good it was. You really had to do a lot of that to get a good buzz on, he said. 
Baxter said that uh, he did know that uh, Damien gotten some money from a kid named Pat. He had gotten $900 or so. And uh, he said that this Pat kid had uh, stolen, stolen that money from his aunt. And uh, Damien had that money around the 23rd or 24th of May. And uh, I was told that uh, Damien gave Pat the key to his apartment as collateral for, uh, for the money that uh, Pat gave him. And uh, Baxter said that Pat had stolen a lot more money from his aunt than the, that 900 or $1,000 or whatever he, uh, he gave to Damien. I asked Baxter if he, uh, if he knew where Damien was, and he said that he didn't, but he thought he might have went to Pittsburgh or somewhere else out of town. And uh, he said he would tell me anything I wanted to know about drugs because he was going away for a long time, and it really didn't matter to him. Uh, and then the, the interview with Baxter ended. I spoke with Mike Baxter first in November of 2021. I reached out on November 3rd and asked whether he'd talk to me. Luckily for me, and untrue to form, he said yes, in response to a slew of general questions I included with my introduction. Buckshot is my preferred first impression, to be honest. Mike answered. I was 16, and I used to sell him Adderall, and then he tried to just muscle me out of it, and he used to hit on my 15-year-old girlfriend. I think he was 19 or 20. The source who told Stephen that Damien bought coke from Jim Sarver the night he went missing and not weed, Jessica or Jess... That's Baxter's ex-girlfriend. And Sarver mentioned this issue of Damien and Jess maybe being friendlier than Mike liked as well. We'll get to that. I asked Mike how he met Damien, and then we sort of got jammed up. Mike was living in Erie about an hour and a half north of Warren and traveling back and forth to help family members out. He set up a time for us to talk, which he kept, and we talked a lot. He told me that back in this day, he sold drugs for Sarver. And that Sarver wasn't really scary, he just didn't mess around when it came to his money, so if you owed Jim, Baxter told me, you paid Jim. He tried to shove off a small debt to Jim at one point, and without even going into a ton of detail, he just said, yeah, you don't stiff Jim Sarver on his money. Mike told me a lot of stories, but all on the phone. When it comes to things he was willing to say to me on Messenger, I got a lot of back and forth. Months after we'd already spent an hour or two on the phone together, I shot him a question, and he asked who I was. A little while after that, I asked him if the story was true about him threatening Jim Sarver with a gun over some perceived closeness between him and his girlfriend that Baxter didn't appreciate. He answered, No, bro, I don't know who Jim Sarver is. The next day, I got an unsolicited follow-up from Mike. But you know what? Just because I don't know who James Sarver is doesn't mean I didn't do that. I was a real animal when I was a kid at about that time. I had a big gun. It was a stainless steel revolver. I'm going to tell you what Jim Sarver said to me in regards to Mike Baxter and the issues he had with other men paying his girlfriend attention when we get to Jim's episode, but know that Baxter was in so much trouble by the time Herzog questioned him that October because on June 13th of 2002, he'd been arrested outside his then ex-girlfriend's house, kitty corner from Sarver's place at 332 Prospect Street, staggering and carrying a rifle. According to the affidavit for that arrest, carried out by Officer Rick Brecht, who would inherit the Damien Sharp case from its original lead investigator, Tony Comenti, the following year, Baxter was reportedly carrying a rifle with a telescopic sight outside that home and walked out from the backyard carrying it when Brecht and other officers arrived. Brecht, the affidavit says, told the subject to drop the gun and lay on the ground. The subject just looked at officers and continued to walk our direction. The suspect was then ordered to the ground at gunpoint and taken into custody. Later on in the affidavit, police wrote, the gun turned out to be loaded. Witnesses interviewed once Baxter was safely neutralized and removed from the scene, the affidavit states, told police that he used to date Jessica and they were afraid of him because he had once thrown gasoline on her. Witnesses went on to say that Baxter just sat in the backyard with the rifle and looked at the rear of the home. Baxter had threatened to shoot the family's cats in the past, this witness told police, according to the affidavit. So Sarver told me he'd been threatened by Mike Baxter with a gun over Jessica too. Baxter himself says he was, quote, an animal back then, but Jim Sarver caught his first violent charge in August of 2002, and another potential person of interest, who we'll get to later this season, also started having trouble keeping their hands to themselves that fall. 
Whether any of that is relevant, we can't say right now, but we're going to look at it to see whether it might be as we go on. For right now, I want to wrap up this note and get moving because I do want us to get through the first missing page of this document, page 23, which deals with Jessica before we quit today. So after interviewing Albert and Mike, Herzog heads over to the police station and talks to Tony Comenti. Tony was the lead investigator on this case from the night it came in, June 3rd, 2002, through the spring of 2003, around the time that Herzog's notes start to taper off. The case was given to Officer Rick Brecht in 2003 by then-Chief Richard Porman. Tony explained to me that he was a new cop at the time and an even newer resident of Warren County, having started his law enforcement career in his 30s in Wesleyville, a municipality outside the city of Erie, PA. The case was getting big. Family was getting restless, Tony said. They needed to hand it off to a more senior officer at that point. But for that first year, Tony said, he did lead this investigation. So Herzog asked Tony that day on Wednesday, October 2nd, 2002, 121 days after Damien had been missing. I asked Tony if he knew uh, how old Bryce Blackman was on May 25th, 2002 if he had uh, access to a vehicle at the time to be uh, driving Damien around. And Shemendi uh, advised me that he uh, did not know the answer for sure to that question, and he would have to talk to uh, Jim Blackman, um, Bryce's father, and uh, attempt to find out uh, about the driver's license and if he had a car at that time. Uh, I also asked if the police knew anything about Damien buying Coke instead of marijuana. Shemendi uh, advised that he thought the information came from, uh, from Jessica. You guys, I hate to tell people bad things, but this really is starting to get to me. On October 2nd, Tony Comenti, quote, did not have a for sure answer as to whether or not the person allegedly driving his missing person around the night he went missing had a driver's license or a car. And he was going to ask that person's dad. Dude, okay. I know that every time I give an opinion, it betrays a level of bias and that bias is bad, but God damn it, if I have not given every single person for the past two years, every benefit of every doubt possible, people come to me and they say, oh my God, thank God you're doing this. The police, they did nothing. You're doing so much more than the police ever did. I try to bite my tongue and I say things like, yeah, I really can't prove that. I don't know. I mean, it seems blah, blah, blah but a nice, soft, non-opinionated response out there so I don't inflame that emotional distrust of law enforcement that seems to run rampant everywhere and get worse and worse as the years go on. I try so hard not to be that person, but I am struggling, and I have struggled since I took possession of this document Friday night with how to say that in a way that does not sound judgmental and condescending, and I can't. I can't, you guys. It just, it cannot happen because... I've been doing this officially for two years. Two years. But this project started in February of 2019 when myself and my friend Amy, the other mom and two moms, sat at the pool at a local hotel while our kids swam, and we talked about the feasibility of taking on the Damien Sharp story as an unaffiliated journalist with way too many other responsibilities and not nearly enough time. And I thought, as she told me everything she knew and remembered of Damien, he'd only ever been an archetypal phantom in my head up to that point, you guys. And I thought about how exhausting it would be to try to prove or disprove the resounding public refrain around this case. The police did nothing. That's like a really shitty story to have to tell. I like telling stories that are not shitty. And after all, that couldn't even be the case, right? Because the police do their jobs. The police don't fall victim to investigative bias. The police don't engage in confirmation bias or investigate things in such a way that it just sweeps issues under the rug. But you guys, it's October 2nd. Damien's been gone, gone for 121 days. And Tony Comenti does not have a for sure answer as to whether the person allegedly driving his missing person around town on the day of his disappearance has a license or access to a car. <sighs> In my interview with Tony last year, I asked him what he learned about Damien over the course of his 20 year open case. And the more than half of those years that Tony spent heading it up. Here's what Tony learned about Damien in 20 years. 
learn about Damien over the course of the investigation just as a person? What did you learn about what kind of person he was? <laughs> um, you know, I mean, I learned, mysterious. Yeah, I learned a lot of different I things. Like. A lot of different things about him. He, he was different. He was definitely a loner. Mm -hmm. He was definitely someone that could just just do his own thing. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, people did like him. Some people didn't. Mm -hmm. um, he was he was somebody that just uh, just existed on his own little plane. Mm -hmm. the The biggest the biggest thing that I took away. Um, from just the folklore of all this and the perception of people that, you know, that actually went to school with him or, or interacted with him out in public. He was, he was the dark, tight, gothic figure. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, um, all of the, the females that he was friends with, they always felt safe with him. I am not saying that law enforcement's jobs are easy. I'm not saying that anyone should have been able to solve the case based on the overwhelming amount of rampant and utter bullshit that people were telling them. But I am telling you that if I had the credentials that Tony had in May of 2002, I'd have known goddamn well off the top of my head whether Bryce Blackman had a license and access to a car on the day that Damien blooped the fuck out. I did know it. The first day I sat down with Tony and the rest of the interested department members, as well as Warren County Sheriff Brian Zabel, and my co-producer, Brian Hagberg, to tell them what I'd learned over the six months I'd spent finding out all of it before I ever even reached out to ask them for their information. I showed up at that department well aware that Bryce did have a license and he did have access to a car. It was a Dodge Neon by all accounts. Green. Four-door. Sedan. It frustrates me that when we go through the next few interviews, we'll get an answer to those phone record questions that doesn't quite make any kind of sense at all, these are not the case-solving questions Herzog is asking these officers, you guys. He's asking, did your driver have a car? He's asking, did you check to see who Damien called? Did you check for signs of a fight at the last place Damien went? These aren't even 101 questions, you guys. These are Scooby-Doo questions. For real. In my opinion, Tony should have had a four-damn-sure answer to that question on October 2nd, 2002. Unpopular opinion among many, I'm sure, but I seem to be just chock full of those lately with no end in sight. I'm also full of positive things to say too, and here they are. I think that while this case suffered in the beginning, it has continued to suffer for years from Damien's image issue to the police, or just because to them, as they told Herzog explicitly, they did not consider his disappearance any kind of crime, so they were investigating the crime they did see, drugs. But they weren't even investigating that all that well because they hadn't even checked Damien's or Sarver's apartments yet, except for the day that Janine and Dana brought them to Damien's when they reported him missing. The only thing of interest in that apartment to police at that time was what kinds of paraphernalia had been removed, according to anything that I can see here. That is tragic. Now listen, I know that you people know about the importance of the first 48 hours. You're listening to a true crime podcast. That is the true crime Bible. And let's talk about the first 48 hours. If the current department has a mess of a case on its hands because the initial investigators and department administration didn't investigate the living shit out of it properly, as I certainly would have because Jesus, if I had half the resources a cop had, every single one of you clowns would be in some bad trouble right now. That initial set of investigators and administrators received a missing person case 232 hours after the first 48 had long since blown past. Someone close to Damien at all should absolutely have called that family or police a lot sooner than they did. Any anger Damien might have had for them if he did come back to find his life laid out on Tony's desk or not in any great valuable detail as the case seems more to be would have been 100% worth it to me. I'm sure... Now, to them too. I'm not coming down or acting like I don't see that 20 years, both of aging and maturing as a person as well as time to think, provides some hella insight. I get it, but damn. Talk about a regret. And would it have made a difference based on facts like this one that Tony didn't know for sure if the person allegedly driving the missing person around had a driver's license or a car? Or would it have just been an extra 10 days for police to try to solve the only kind of crime they saw? drug trafficking in Warren County. The current city of Warren Police Department, that's Chief Spravery, Sergeant Bees, and everyone else making it up, is taking steps to be transparent and accountable in this case in ways Poorman and Tony's department should have. And that's my final answer on that. 
They've released this document to Damien's family. They're taking information I have and new ways of looking at the information they have from me. I'm doing my best to follow up and ensure that that activity and that approach continue. We have questions about the missing pages of this document and we'll work on finding answers to those, but I reached out to Sergeant B's immediately as soon as I saw they were missing. You gonna act like I didn't check them page number by page number first thing to make sure, kids? Come on. Bees told me that he redacted nothing from the document and that he pulled it from the case file as it was, turning it over to Chief Spraveri to release to Damien's family. Chief Spraveri also says that he redacted nothing from the original document as it was presented to him. So as far as I can tell, and as far as they say, those pages are in fact missing. Let's press forward, maybe extend this episode just a few more minutes so we can squeeze these last few pages in before we get to that missing page 23. That way we aren't behind in the syllabus, kids. The end of this current note, after Herzog interviewed Albert and Baxter and got his answer from Tony on Bryce's credential or lack thereof, he drove back to the jail to see if the chief sheriff's deputy and future sheriff Ken Claycamp could go over the information on any searches and interviews done by or in association with his office on the case. Claycamp, Herzog writes, was not available. We're almost there, kids. Hang in. Okay, so next day, Thursday, October 3rd, Herzog visited the state police barracks in Starbrick, and he met with personnel there who'd worked with cases involving Jim Sarver in the past. I swear to God, as a journalist, this guy got me shaking my fists like a cartoon villain over here. Do you know the variety of body parts I would offer up for the ability to just saunter into the state police barracks to bullshit about some cases involving some folks around here? Goddamn. That person told me they had uh, seen several people coming and going into Sarver's apartment, uh, that that people were coming and going at a pace that just wasn't to visit. They weren't spending enough time inside that residence that uh, drug activity was apparently occurring. That activity stopped several months before uh, Damien Sharp had become a missing person. This person also told Herzog that the activity at Sarver's place ended before they could get enough to launch a full investigation. On October 4th, Herzog starts keeping kind of slightly secret notes cryptic little one-sentence paragraphs that tell us he did something but nothing at all about what exactly that was or how it furthered his understanding of what went down. I was initially pretty pissed off about this malarkey, but then I remembered that anyone who attempted to read my notes, even anyone who attempts to read my pre-edited script for this episode, you guys, is going to need one hell of a decoder ring to do so. And, like John, not everything I learn is in my notes. It's in my head. It's in visual aids or other material I've generated to help organize and disseminate it to people who need it as it comes up. Remember, everything we deal with on Damien is theoretical at this point. Still, sometimes you gotta get your Venn diagram on. Nerd life. Anyhow, Friday, October 4th, Herzog notes that Crime Corporal Edward Durunda of the Warren Station of the Pennsylvania State Police visited him at home, quote, at my request, and we discussed what options were available in the investigation. Again, I'd have been brainstorming with anyone who'd give me the time of day to, from any corner of the world I knew to pull from. I wish that law enforcement culture of that time would have developed the inkling to reach out to their local journalists. I know for a fact there were several good choices who'd have handled the shit out of this story for them and been thrilled to work with them to do what I'm trying to do now, which is to disseminate the relevant information to the public so that it can do what it does best and talk all about it at the pepper mill. Moving on, October 7th, Herzog ran Damien through IRB search, basically the 2002 version of been verified and probably not available to your casual dial-up surfer. I'm not sure. I was not background checking people at this time. For this, Herzog added a $50 additional expense. I'm not judging, that's fair. It's an expense of doing the work you were hired to do, and if expenses were a part of the deal, then charge away. But just maybe don't ask the family who's already paid your expenses, additional or not, to pay you to tell the police what you know when you're done, is all. Anyhow. Nothing new to report in that uh, report, except the name of a possible soldier who might have served with Damien, Grant S. Coleman, with a Montana address. Shout at me if anybody knows about that cat. Otherwise, I'll be on that as quick as possible and trying to reach out to him if I can find him now. I'll keep you posted on that thread. Other than that, this note is pretty much nursing home mashed potatoes. Next, on Tuesday, October 8th, it starts to get informative again. 
Finally, Herzog reached out to the city of Warren police to speak with Lieutenant Walker again, and Patrolman Scott Taylor answered that call. Herzog writes here that, Scott Taylor is the city police department lead investigator in the Damien Sharp case. Up to now, according to everyone I've spoken with, Tony has been considered the initial lead on this investigation with Taylor and Patrolman Ken Hinton assisting along the way. I'll be reaching out to Scott Taylor in the next week or so to see if he'll discuss this case with us since he may have had a larger part than we initially believed, or we may find out that this is just an errant note in the overall Herzog canon. Either way, stand by on that. Do what I can to find out what I can for you. Anyhow, Taylor told Herzog that he would assist me in any way he could, and I advised Patrolman Taylor that I would not do anything in this investigation if it becomes a criminal case unless the city police were aware of what was going on. I started by asking Taylor about the uh, phone call that was made by Damien from the uh, residence of James Server, and if uh, any attempt had been made to obtain the records of this phone call. And Taylor advised me that Sarver did say that uh, Damien made a phone call from his residence, but uh, Sarver didn't, he didn't know who Damien called. Taylor told me he uh, personally called Verizon and was uh, told that they could not trace a local call. Uh, the only information that I could get was it was, in fact, a local call. I asked Taylor if any attempts had been made to uh, check Sarver's old apartment for uh, any physical evidence of a of a fight or blood or etc. Taylor said he didn't know until over the weekend that uh, Sarver had moved out of his apartment at 332 Prospect Street and he was now living at 103.5 Russell Street. I asked Taylor if he knew how old Brace Blackman is and if he would have access to a car on or near the 25th of May of this year. Uh, Taylor advised me that Blackman was 17 years old in October of this year I asked if James Sarver had a driver's license, and Taylor advised me that uh, he does, but he's not sure, and he doesn't think that he has a car. Taylor said he talked to Steve twice, and uh, he didn't think that he was telling everything that he knew. I asked about Jessica and advised that uh, people told me that uh, she's the person who advised Damien bought Coke instead of marijuana. Uh, Patrolman Taylor said that uh, he had not done that yet, he had not done an interview yet with uh, Jessica, and uh, I told him that I, uh, I was going to do an interview with her if, uh, if that was okay with him, and uh, he told me to go ahead, and uh, if he needed to, he would talk to her later. couple of things. Um, that's not accurate. I've spoken with Verizon myself trying to get CDR call detail records for both Damien and Sarver's numbers at that time. No dice. And a 139-page document written by the FBI's Cellular Analysis Survey Team and obtained by journalists using the Freedom of Information Act like goddamn bosses in 2021 gives you a great rundown of how law enforcement can get your calls. There's a link to the document itself in the show notes, another link to a great summary article written by Vice. But basically what I want you to know is that Verizon keeps call detail records, logs of who called in and who called out, to or from any given phone number for a period of one year. Law enforcement can put things like legislative holds on these CDRs, essentially saying, listen, we don't need these records at the moment, but we may. And since investigations in the courts move slow as hell, we're telling you that if you get rid of those records for that particular phone number, we'll break your kneecaps. No, that's not what they say at all, but you get it. It's not true that Verizon could only have told Scott Taylor in 2002 whether a call to or from Damien or Sarver's phone number was local. That may be what Scott heard from Verizon, and it may be what Verizon told him, but that don't necessarily make it so, kids. I'm not sure what else to say there. All I know is that when I attempted with no law enforcement credentials <laughs> to determine whether call detail records for Damien or Jim's number had ever been pulled, ever, since May 25th, 2002, and the guy at Verizon was like, first of all, ma'am, you're insane, and also, no, no one ever tried to pull them, nor was there a legislative hold placed on them, ever, ever, ever. I mean, you guys know every single thing I do. If you've got a good explanation for this absolutely viper's nest of silly-ass nonsense right here, please ring in and set me straight. Herzog finished up that day with Taylor, working out the news release they planned to run ahead of hunting season at the family's request. We're at the end for the day, kids. Just one last note to go through, and that's the one that sets up our first missing page, page 23, Herzog's interview with Jessica. 
So on Wednesday, October 9th, Herzog set up an interview with Jessica's mother. Jessica, at the time, was still under the age of 18. I told her I had to go to Jamestown today and that I would call her when I got back to Warren so I could come to her residence and uh, interview her daughter. I advised her that I would be there somewhere around 8 p.m., and she told me that uh, that was fine and uh, she would talk with me then. Herzog worked out the newspaper's end of that news release from the last note with reporter Ellen Cranick, and then, on his way back from Jamestown, he writes that he called Jessica's house and got her dad this time, who told him that he felt it was too late for an interview and uh, asked if sometime on Thursday would be okay. We agreed that I would be there at their uh, residence about 5 p.m. for an interview. A really smart guy once said to me that he likes to think of all mistakes like this. Mistakes that people learn from are lessons well learned. Otherwise, they are, in fact, to be repeated. I said in season one that I felt that there were mistakes made in this investigation, and who the hell am I to say that, right? Crazy girl with a mic? We'll see, I guess, but I stand behind it to this day, probably more convinced than I was back then, thanks to what I've learned in this document. The mistakes made in this case, they belong to the City of Warren Police Department, mostly, but they belong to Poorman's Department. If I don't go missing after this episode, it'll be a goddamn miracle. But I said what I said. I sincerely hope that the culture of the current department continues to be one that errs, if it does so, on the side of transparency and accountability to the public it serves, before it does so to the egos of fellow officers. All right. I'm not going to lay anything else on you, not even an outro today, you guys. You've waited patiently alongside us for this day, and you're caught up with us now. So next week, we're going to find out what we learned from Dave and Bryce. It's been something, you guys. Thank you for joining us. Hope to see you next week. Smoke is a weekly true crime podcast written and told by me, Stacy Gross of Two Moms Media. Your producers are myself and Brian Hagberg of Your Daily Local. Our theme song is Diddy Six, written and produced by my father, Bob Gross. Big thanks this week to Dean Wells, who provided the voice of John Herzog to break up my cacophonous squawking and change the pace. Much appreciated, Dean. We hope to see you again in the future. Mostly, mostly it's my poor overworked larynx. If you have information about Damien's case to share with police, reach out to Detective Tiffany Post, City of Warren Police Department at 814-723-2700. If you have memories or stories of Damien or information about him or his case that you don't want to share with police, you need to reach out to me at 814-230-5855. Texting is the most efficient way to get at me and to get a response double stack. If you're digging this project, please take a second to rate and review on whatever platform you're using to listen right now. It makes a huge difference and it really helps more people find out about Damien's case. Until next week, kids, eyes and ears open. Let's find Damien. <laughs>